3: and welcome to the podcast hour. I'm Richard Scott and I want to find all the best stuff to listen to. With more than half a million podcasts already out there and thousands more new ones launching every single week, there's so much to listen to. But finding the good ones isn't always easy to do. So each week I track down some of the best audio storytelling from all over the world and share it with you. And on this week... From Pillows to Bars of Soap, a show that brings everyday objects to life.
4: I see some people with the confidence of a person with a full head of hair, but yeah. I know that that confidence is it's misguided mm-hmm. or it's not long for this world.
3: Then a real labour of love, a one-man history of country music that's attracting new fans to this often mocked and neglected musical genre.
0: This has been the best year of my life, for sure. You're listening to Cocaine and Rhinestones, the podcast about 20th century country music and the lives of those who gave it to us.
3: Plus an award-winning show covering big global news stories in a bright and breezy style.
1: What is it like to be in the room when enemies are trying to forge peace? How has the idea of the summit evolved? And did anyone figure out what Dennis Rodman was doing there? This is The Foreign Desk. And Dead Bodies is an Australian podcast asking
3: people an unusual, macabre but intriguing question. Have you ever seen a dead body? That's all coming up, and I'm always on the lookout for your listening recommendations too. The email address is pods at radioNZ.co.nz and on Twitter we're at rnzpodcasthour. Podcast Hour. If the everyday objects that surround us could talk, then what would they say? That's the whimsical idea at the centre of Everything is Alive, a show that brings inanimate objects to life and displays the sometimes surprisingly perceptive inner life of our soft drink cans, bars of soap and pillows. And some of these things have got a lot to say for themselves.
4: Hello, my name is Maeve. Um, and I live, I guess you'd say, in Brooklyn, New York. I don't know if you how you chose me out of all the other lampposts, because a lot of people are like, they're all the same. But I, I'm glad that you did. I think you made the right choice. <laughs> because I wouldn't say, you know, that I'm better than them, but I would say I'm different in a way that's really good. I'm pretty tall. I guess you might have walked into me. <laughs> Hopefully not. People sometimes tie their dogs on a leash to me. I also am a holder of notices. So people who are looking for nannies, babysitters, lost dogs, um, you'll find those uh, stuck onto me. Regardless of whether or not you're scared of the dark, I'm going to be shining. But you know what? Some people really are scared of the light. Think about that.
5: Do you, like, they... I mean, I think that Honestly, truth... I, d-
4: I don't know what that means, but I did hear a woman saying that when she walked by me before.
5: Well, democracy dies in darkness. Yeah. That's the Washington Post motto. Huh.
4: See? The Washington lamppost. Post. I think that's where it must have come from.
5: Well, Maeve, let's let's just start here. Uh, what is a typical day like for you?
4: Oh, so, um, I mean, it depends on when I get turned on. Like these days it's usually around seven, and then uh I just like that's when that's my work day, so it's busy <sighs> oh, oh, you know, there's always something going on i mean there's like first of all, you have people right doing mm-hmm. whatever what it is people do, they run, they walk, they talk, they fight, they push smaller people in little uh wheeled cages.
5: Strollers, yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. You know, I
5: I think about the perspective you yeah. have on us, which is literally looking down on us from right. above.
4: Yeah, thank you, yeah.
5: And I wonder, yeah. are there things that you see about us in us that maybe we don't see in each other?
4: Well, I mean, the obvious things are when somebody is balding. I can spot that immediately. Right. Um, and Probably before we, we even yes. know. yes. Because I see some people with the confidence of a person with a full head of hair. But I know that that confidence is, it's misguided Mm -hmm. or it's not long for this world. And I think, um, you know, I just see, I see a lot of dates happening, which is when two humans are figuring out whether, you know, they will or not.
5: They will or not.
4: Right. I actually am not, it's not clear to me what they're working on. But there's some question between them, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, will we or won't we? Seems yeah. to be a big issue around yes. lampposts. And often they lean against me to figure it out. So like they're pressing against each other mm-hmm. and they're pushing their mouths on each other.
6: Kissing. And they're like,
4: will yeah. we, won't we? Do you want to? I don't know. And so that's kind of like interesting to me because I'm like, make up your minds. Get off me.
5: You know if the answer to that question "Will they or won't they?" yeah is that they will right you have kind of played a formative role in their lives, you know the the question is will will they be together?"
4: Yeah, I do have some role in that, and I do like the thought I guess of you know being an important part of someone's destiny, a person's mm-hmm. destiny, but I kind of wish for more, like I do wish for more sometimes. Like I know that lampposts have featured in film. I see films. I've seen Speed so many times. Speed. You know, because we can watch TV in the buildings, and the apartment that's directly across from me, they watch a lot of television.
5: Oh, you are at you are at a level where you can see into apartments.
4: Yeah, like on my street, we're all basically up to the third floor of the buildings.
5: Okay. Yeah, so yeah. we can
4: see across to them, and I love films. Wow. Like the golden age of film with Sandra Bullock, Speed. And so when I see, I sometimes see lampposts in films, in Speed, she, she flew past so many lampposts. It was cool.
5: So you're watching for the the lampposts in the films.
4: Yeah, uh-huh. always. I guess it's like, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Right. So when I see myself up there on the big screen and... There was another one. It's like an older. It would have been like my ancestors, I guess, featured in uh, singing in the rain. It's called. Yeah. Um. And that's
5: a that's a kind of famous lamp. He swings around. If I yeah. remember, he grabs the lamppost and swings around. Oh
4: yeah, the the lamppost is the lead in that movie. So that's what's cool for all of us to see that. Yeah. It's like yeah, there's some people, but I don't think they matter like it's just like there's a cast of people dancers I think there and then it's mainly about the lamppost and the rain.
3: Mave the lamppost part of episode two of everything is alive from Radiotopia. I also enjoyed one about a can of own brand cola called Lewis and there are newer episodes about a pillow and a bar of soap too and thanks to Ian Chillag for his help in bringing that to you. now something I really didn't expect to enjoy as much as I did. You're listening to Cocaine and Rhinestones, the podcast about
0: 20th century country music and the lives of those who gave it to us. My name is Tyler Mahan Coe. I've heard these stories my whole life. As far as I can tell, here's the truth about this
3: one. And even if you think that a podcast about country music doesn't really sound like your cup of tea, then do give it a listen. I'll speak to Tyler, who puts cocaine and rhinestones together in just a minute. Basically, he comes from a well-known country music family, was working as a professional musician in his dad's band, but then left and hadn't quite found his niche. But he loves country music and couldn't find any good country podcasts to listen to, so decided he was going to make one himself. And I do mean himself, it's just him doing it all, the research, the scripting, the editing, the recording and the sound engineering, learning as he goes. He's 14 episodes in so far and apparently each one takes him about 100 hours to put together. Anyway, enough yakking, I'd like you to hear some of it. Here's a clip from the fourth episode of Cocaine and Rhinestones which tells the story of Bobby Gentry and her 1967 hit, Ode to Billy Joe. (laughs)
7: June, another sleepy dusty delta day. I was out chopping cotton, and my brother was bailing hay. And at dinner time, we stopped and walked back to the, the house
3: The song was originally planned as the B side of her first solo <laughs> single. But then the musical arranger Jimmy Haskell got involved and introduced some strings.
7: And then she said, I got some news this morning from Choctaw Ridge Today Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge Papa said to mama as he passed around the black eye.
0: The cinematic approach is most evident near the end, when the strings go up with the narrator going up on Choctaw Ridge to pick flowers, and the strings going down when the narrator throws the flowers down off the bridge.
7: And me, I spend a lot of time picking flowers up on Choctaw Ridge And drop them into the muddy water off the Tallahatchie Bridge
0: By the time Haskell gets done with the song, Capitol Records has a problem. It's too good for the B-side of a record. The staff producer assigned to work with Bobby is a brand new hire named Kelly Gordon. At the next A&R meeting, Kelly submits both Mississippi Delta and Ode to Billy Joe for consideration as Bobby Gentry's first A-side. Bobby's original demo of Ode to Billy Joe was seven minutes long. Kelly Gordon had to chop it down to 4 minutes and 15 seconds just so it would fit on one side of a 45 RPM 7-inch. But that was still a full minute and 15 seconds longer than any record company wanted a single to be. DJs were more likely to play shorter singles to pack more songs in between commercial breaks. As a result, labels had a tendency to think of 3 minutes as the limit for any song with hit potential. Still, there was something about this song. The suits at that meeting rightly chose Ode to Billy Joe for the A-side. Mississippi Delta was moved to the B-side, and from there, everything got real crazy, real fast. The single was released in July of 1967. By the end of August, it was the number one song in America. It would eventually rise to the top 20 on country charts, but this is a pop song. Bobby Gentry was never a country artist. And I'm not doing that whole authenticity thing. I don't believe she ever set out to make country music. Was her music Southern? Absolutely, yes. But so was Gone With The Wind. So was everything that came out of Stax Records in Memphis. Probably the quickest way to show you what I mean is just to let you hear a clip of Bobby doing Doug Kershaw's classic, Louisiana Man.
7: Well, I even let me see a cowboy show.
0: Okay, so we're all on the same page here, right? This is not country music. You could say it's like, Pop music about country music. So, then why am I talking about Bobby Gentry on a podcast about country music, right? Okay. Like other not country things, such as Hawaiian steel guitars, 80s hair metal, and pop music in general, Bobby's music had a huge impact on country music. We have to talk about her for context before we can even begin to talk about, for instance, Harper Valley PTA, which I'm going to do a few episodes after this one. Sheryl Crow and Katie Lang have both hired Jimmy Haskell when they wanted that Bobby Gentry sound. Lucinda Williams cites Bobby as one of her strongest early influences. But Bobby also influenced basically every other genre of music. Ode to Billy Joe won a Grammy Award for Jimmy Haskell and three Grammy Awards for Bobby Gentry. Lou Donaldson's jazz cover of the song has one of the most sampled drum breaks in hip-hop history. nearly 200 songs Kanye West Jesus walks
7: the to break
0: a tribe called quest clap your hands
7: the by what i chosen to hill an angel came one day, told me to nail down and pray. So not my lifestyle. I'm just being frank with you. I mean, where you think she at when she ain't
5: with
0: you? Wildin' doing. Don't shit. suppose an explanation. Eminem. But the way that you turned your back on me just when I may have needed you most. Oh, you thought it was over. You was close. Snoop. You see, way back in the days on Tent and lime, it was
5: on. I wake up in the morning just to get my come-up my on it. Was Sleeping in the same bed, smoking on the same bug, giving up that family love.
0: And, it no- and that's just music. O'Da Billy Joe was a revelation for many people's understanding of what could be accomplished in narrative fiction. Bobby's handwritten lyrics to the song are in the University of Mississippi archives next to works by other Mississippi authors like William Faulkner and Tennessee Williams. If pop music can be considered high art, and I believe that it can, then that's what this is. And for anyone who still hasn't heard it, who ignored my earlier suggestion, this is your last chance to pause and listen before I really get into it. Alright. The reason Ode to Billy Joe is respected as literature is because it tells a story as good as any short story by any other author you'd like to name. The music writer Griel Marcus was driving somewhere the first time he heard the song on the radio, and he became so focused on it that he crashed into the car ahead of him in traffic. It's narrated by a female character who does not tell us her name. In fact, four of the five verses in the song take place around her family dinner table, but we're not told the names of any of those people either. Father, mother, brother, all nameless. Every character in the song she isn't related to has a name. The first name we hear is Billy Joe McAllister, and that's because Billy Joe has jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. We're never explicitly told that Billy Joe died from jumping off the bridge, but it's safe to assume he did based on the response from our narrator's family. Or rather, on how she seems to expect a certain response where there isn't one. Her mother eventually asks why she hasn't eaten anything, but it's more about how long the mother spent cooking the meal than it is about why the daughter's leaving it untouched. The second name we get is Tom. That's who the narrator's brother remembers hanging out with when they and Billy Joe McAllister put a frog down the back of the narrator's dress at a movie theater. Third name, Brother Taylor. He's the local preacher who came by earlier in the day. He's probably the source of the news of Billy Joe's death, and he apparently mentioned that he'd recently seen a girl who looked a lot like our narrator up on the Tallahatchie Bridge with Billy Joe. They were throwing something off that bridge. The last name we get is Becky Thompson. It's a year after the dinner table scene from the previous four verses. The narrator's brother has married Becky and moved to Tupelo. The narrator's father caught a virus and died in the last year. Her mother is devastated by the loss. These days, our narrator spends a lot of time picking flowers and throwing them into the water off the Tallahatchie Bridge. In that quick recap... I rolled right through something that has driven people out of their minds for half a century. Some of you probably didn't even notice. By all accounts, it was never meant to be such a big deal. But listeners became obsessed with figuring out what it was that Billy Joe McAllister and this girl had been seen throwing off that bridge. Theories run the spectrum, from plausible to ridiculous, but before I get into it, here's the one and only correct answer, straight from Bobby Gentry herself, repeated on multiple occasions. It doesn't matter, at all, what was thrown off the bridge. It's called a MacGuffin, and it's pretty much always been a thing in storytelling. A screenwriter who often worked with Alfred Hitchcock came up with a word for it, and that's what we've called it since the 1930s. Probably the most well-known example of a MacGuffin from modern times would be the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. The plot of the entire movie centers around that briefcase. We never find out what's in it, and it doesn't matter, because the movie's great. That's what a MacGuffin is. It's a random little anything used by a storyteller to move a plot forward. Other examples from movies would be The Maltese Falcon in The Maltese Falcon or The Monolith in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Sometimes you find out more about the MacGuffin, sometimes not. The thing about the MacGuffin in Ode to Billy Joe is that it's so subtle, you can listen to this song 50 times and never notice that it's there. Except radio DJs, music writers, people like me, (laughs) pretty much the entire media, grabbed onto it in July of 1967 and never let go. Anyone can use a MacGuffin. There's nothing special about it. It may be what generated so much of the original hype, but this song isn't still held in such high critical regard because it made us all wonder what was thrown off a bridge. In Bobby Gentry's own words, as told to the interviewer Fred Bronson, the song is sort of a study in unconscious cruelty, but everybody seems more concerned with what was thrown off the bridge than they are with the thoughtlessness of the people expressed in the song. What was thrown off the bridge really isn't that important. Everybody has a different guess about what was thrown off the bridge. Flowers, a ring, even a baby. Anyone who hears the song can think what they want, but the real message of the song, if there must be a message, revolves around the nonchalant way the family talks about the suicide. They sit there, eating their peas and apple pie, and talking without even realizing that Billy Joe's girlfriend is sitting at the table. I think what she's saying there is that it wouldn't matter if you did know what was thrown off the bridge because you still wouldn't be able to connect with this girl's trauma. Her own family can't connect to it, and you don't even know this girl's name. It's about how nobody can ever truly feel anyone else's pain. And most of the time, they can't even be bothered to try. Same thing with Billy Joe's girlfriend. The loss of Billy Joe McAllister is so devastating for her that it eclipses the grief you'd expect her to have for her own father's much more recent passing. Instead of being there for her now traumatized mother, this girl's off picking flowers and throwing them off a bridge. These are complex themes for major label pop music of any era. The fact that a 25-year-old kid was able to present this to the world in such a neat package is impressive. Some people might say it's a little too good to be true,
3: those people believe Bobby Gentry did not write this song. Part of episode four called Bobby Gentry exits stage left from Cocaine and Rhinestones. I spoke to Tyler Mahan Co. from his home and the home of country music, Nashville, Tennessee. And I asked him why country music has a bit of an image problem and seems to get neglected in favour of other music.
0: In the United States of America, for a long time, the mainstream opinion of country music has been that it's not cool. You know, it's dumb and only old people like it, you know. As a result, there's not very much interest in the people who made it. And a lot of people just write off this entire world. But there are people who know that it's great you know and there are people who've written a lot of books I mean a lot of what I'm talking about has been written in books a lot of really good books have been written about country music but also a lot of really bad books have been written about country music and the problem is that since we don't have so many people talking about this stuff we aren't getting that many perspectives in the mainstream at least Sort of the unspoken theme of the show is that these are stories that I've been hearing, you know, my entire life. And often I would find out that the way I heard the story the first time isn't right. You know, if I looked into it myself, I would find out the truth about it. So sort of the unspoken theme of the show is me taking this stuff that I think I know or everyone thinks they know and just going as deep as I possibly can to figure out what is and isn't true. Like, if I can't find a good source for something, then I probably shouldn't be running my mouth
3: about it, you know. And why the decision to make a podcast? Because it sounds like it's quite a literary endeavor in that you start with texts and books. Why a podcast? And could it turn into a book one day, do you think?
0: Oh, it's definitely going to be... There, there will be books written around this for sure. But it, this is just the way that people like to hear stories now. I mean, it, podcasts are the new thing. It's like the democratization of radio. It's it's a pretty incredible thing that's happening. And I think that it's only just now getting started. I tell everyone I know, if you think you've got a good idea for a podcast, you should at least try to make it, especially if you think it's something important. But yeah, if you, if you've got something to say, you can say it. You can get it out there and you can get it. Heard on a much wider scale, so this was just a way to maybe bring some, first of all, really great content to this medium that had none of it. That's the other thing is there wasn't even a bad podcast about the history of country music when I started, there were zero, and that's just mind blowing to me. I I assumed that someone was already doing this i looked for it to listen to it and then it wasn't there and that's pretty much when i realized that i had to try to do it myself
3: and the stories that you tell i mean you do it i get the feeling you're almost approaching it almost like a work of scholarship and that you're not some of the details could be portrayed in a slightly salacious or titillating way but you don't really do that you you try and tell the story as best you can you present alternative versions of the same history and kind of say well this is the one I think is the most likely and then at the end of the of the episode which some of them you know are an hour and a half long each episode you almost have this kind of footnote section where you are picking up on things perhaps that you've heard since recording all right
0: liner notes Please believe me when I tell you that I am extremely aware of the very prominent theory of what is in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. I've been informed that T. Tommy Cutterer's last name is actually pronounced Cutraire or Cutraire. And Tom didn't only do commercials for Tyson Chicken. You can find a ton of Tom T. Hall commercials on YouTube. I've even seen him joke about how many product endorsements he did.
3: I think you call them liner notes, don't you, at the end of each episode? What's the intention there? With the
0: first thing you talked about, it's just this really matters. These are human beings that we're talking about. You know, another problem that I have with the way that country music gets looked at is people have a tendency to reduce these people to cartoonish figures, you know. And that's not nice. Uh, It's... They deserve better than that. These people deserve better than that. These are the original rock stars, man, and they matter. You don't get all the stuff that people love about mainstream rock music. That does not happen without country music. It just doesn't happen without country music. You don't get Elvis without country music, you know, and it's not often that country musicians are treated with that respect. Johnny Cash is probably the only one that I can think of that almost everyone's like, oh, yeah, he's great. So yeah, these are these are people and it's what they deserve. And it's the the full title of the show is Cocaine of Rhinestone's The History of Country Music. You know, I'm doing this because the music matters and it's important. And I'm not doing this to take advantage of as you said, salacious details of stories. If if it's not relevant to the music or who this person really was, then I probably don't need to be talking about it. You know, if someone's got a crazy family member that's always in tabloids, if that's not relevant to the situation, it's none of my business, you know? And uh, the liner notes are, I don't really know why I decided to do that. I guess that it would have felt dishonest for me to sit down and tell all these stories and act like, other people hadn't done all of this work that made it possible for me to even do that, you know? So I knew that I at least had to acknowledge the writers and cause sometimes I'm agreeing with them and sometimes I'm disagreeing with them too. I can't very well talk about a very well known, but incorrect version of one of these stories without talking about where this, the, that came from, you know, like where people are getting that information and I'm Opinionated, You know, I have ideas about a lot of this stuff and that doesn't necessarily seem like it always needs to be injected in the story itself. You know, I should probably just tell you the story about the person and make that be as good as it can be. And then if I feel like there's more I could have said somewhere, just save that for the end, you know.
3: The other interesting thing I've noticed that you do is at the front of every show, there are these what sound like digressions. So you'll talk about um, um, the Bobby Gentry episode, for example, you talk about the idea of celebrity and fame. Sometimes we imagine a celebrity as the best version of ourselves. Achieving the goals in the world that we would
0: achieve if we had that body or those opportunities. Answering questions and reacting to
3: circumstances the way we like to think we would. And that can go on for like eight to ten minutes at the front of the episode before we even really hear Bobby Gentry's name, which is it's kind of an unconventional approach because the conventional approach would be you find a few titillating stories and sprinkle them at the front to kind of lure people in, if you like, to the story. But you don't do that at all, do you?
0: No, I that, one, that episode was pretty scary. I felt like I took some pretty big risks making that one. It was pretty early in the season. As you said, I think you're just listening to me talk about what fame is, what being famous is for a solid 10 minutes before you hear, I I think you do hear Bobby singing before I start doing that though. So you do hear her voice, but that's sort of the opposite of the liner notes thing is I don't know how anyone could approach understanding her story without having that conversation about fame beforehand. Because if you just tell that story, It's like, well, why would anyone do that, you know, and you can get it out of the way. And it's also just it's fun from a storytelling angle to something that people may not know about my father is that he went through this phase of being obsessed with stage magic, you know, illusions like David Copperfield type stuff. And for a while there, he was touring with a music and magic show and i was in the magic show like i was a part of the doing the tricks and i he would buy me instruction manuals how to do like all this close up magic and i got really into it too you know sort of like a father son bonding thing all these cup and ball tricks card tricks coin tricks and what that is is misdirection you know that's what stage magic is and I didn't even realize it until after I had already completed the first season, but I guarantee you that misdirection being such a big part of my childhood has a lot to do with the way that I like to tell stories. And it really is just fun. It's fun to say, Hey, look at this. And in your other hand, you're loading the payoff, you know, you're, you're getting ready to deliver something that no one sees coming, you know, and that's really fun. And I think that Good storytelling is often that, you know, it's often about figuring out when to do the thing, you know, when to do the magic trick.
3: <laughs> so you you were a musician in your dad's band as well, were you? So you were a professional musician, but you also had a sideline in magic tricks as well. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, he stopped doing the magic thing. This was when I was very, very young. So then I had to go to school and stuff like that. And then I dropped out of school at the age of 15 because I was getting brought home in police cars too often and my mom was talking about military school, which didn't sound like a great time (laughs) to me. So yeah, I dropped out of high school and I went on tour and yeah, my dad put me in his band and then I learned how to play guitar and I got good and I sort of took over band leader duties of like hiring the musicians and all that stuff. And it was a
3: wild and crazy time. And then your dad, this is according to Wikipedia, so it's not perhaps the, the greatest of sources, but it sounded like your dad effectively sacked his whole band, including you, at, at one point in his career.
0: It, it started with just, like, one professional relationship falling apart. I don't know if people know this about David Alan Coe, but, I mean, he's burned a lot of bridges in his career, and it's not hard to find people who have no communication with him anymore so i've i've witnessed that a lot from the inside and then when i realized that i was about to be put on the outside (laughs) i've had seen it happen from the other side so many times that i knew that there was just no point in uh trying to reason or apply logic So it just all sort of like fell apart and it was a pretty rough time for me after that because I had no job experience and a pretty solid criminal record and couldn't get a job, you know, like I couldn't get hired to work a cash register at like a fast food place. So I was giving blood plasma twice a week to buy groceries and then I taught myself enough music theory to be able to give guitar lessons and I made enough money to pay out my lease so I didn't screw my roommates over until I could come back to Nashville and sort of worked in marketing for a while. Because, you know, having 13 years on tour is seen as job experience in Nashville. And now, I mean, after everything I've worked at in Nashville, I've seen the venue side of things. I've seen the manager, promoter, agent, you know, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, it, it really is. A, it, it took me a long time. And winding route to get to where I'm at but all of those places that I was at for little points in time really do contribute perspective to what I'm doing now so yeah it's not like I would go back and change anything you know
3: you must be pretty happy though with the way cocaine and rhinestones has been received I think you've already said it exceeded your expectations for it already
0: Oh, wildly. Yeah. This, this has been the best year of my life for sure. Yes. Uh, this is what I'm going to get to do for as long as I want to do it because people, this is what people want me to be doing. And that's a really great feeling to know that I made this thing just a hundred percent the way I wanted it to be. You know, maybe I could have been a little bit better at certain technical aspects of making a podcast at the beginning But I do think that I got good enough pretty quickly. And I made a show just exactly the way that I wanted it to be. I didn't have a team of people telling me what to do. I didn't test it. I didn't do test screenings and change things. And it's a really rare thing to be able to do that as a creative person, to just get something made exactly the way you want it to be made. So to be able to do that is really satisfying. But then to also have it so well-received, to the point where I can just keep doing it the way that I want to. It's not like there's anything I need to change about it now. It's really fantastic. I I definitely never thought that I would be doing anything like this. Feeling this satisfied with the way my life is going is a really new thing, and I cannot recommend it highly enough.
3: Cocaine and Rhinestones host, producer, sound engineer, and editor Tyler Mahan Co. And if you like the sound of the show, there are 14 episodes already out there to get through. I listened to the ones about Tom T. Hall and the Leuven brothers and enjoyed both of them too. And he's just about to start writing season two, which he says will feature more cocaine and fewer rhinestones. <laughs> The Foreign Desk covers world news in a bright and breezy format. According to its enthusiastic host, the Australian journalist Andrew Muller, what sets The Foreign Desk apart is a guiding principle of actually speaking to at least one person from the country they're talking about. As Andrew says in an email, it shouldn't be unusual, but it is. This recent primer on the Trump-Kim summit in Singapore called Do We Still Need International Summits is a good example of the show's signature style and also told me all I needed to know about what happened at the summit itself and the past and the future of these carefully choreographed pieces of political stagecraft.
1: Summits have become a familiar and frequent diplomatic ritual. It sometimes seems that national leaders spend more of their time affecting a convivial rictus and shaking hands in front of flags than they do actually governing. That being the case, it takes something extraordinary to jolt everyone from summit fatigue. And the Singapore symposium between US President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un was exactly that. It remains to be seen whether the Trump-Kim meeting will accomplish anything meaningful. But is that even the purpose of a summit anymore? What is it like to be in the room when enemies are trying to forge peace? How has the idea of the summit evolved? And did anyone figure out what Dennis Rodman was doing there? This is The Foreign Desk. The idea was really that there were issues that could only be settled by the leaders and needed to be done face to face, partly because of the whole concept of trust, in a sense of being able to look the other guy in the eye, shake his hand, and then come to a deal which might work.
8: From the Singaporean point of view, I think the city-state was just so glad to play a part in these peace talks that had the world spotlight on them. I went sort of beyond the two protagonists it was about gaining a, a strong place
6: geopolitically and in media all over the world for this particular week. The summit in the end must deliver on the substance. That's why most summits either open a process or alternatively, is the last stop on the railroad before you actually close a negotiation and an agreement. And the ones that fall in the middle, those tend to be more problematic.
1: Hello and welcome to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, we'll hear from a former negotiator about what goes on inside the room at international talks and how summits have evolved since Europe's aristocrats rattled across the continent in horse-drawn carriages to the Congress of Vienna. But we start in Singapore, where history, if not sense, was made when US President Donald Trump became the first occupant of that position to meet a leader of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Following the circumstances, on Sentosa was Stefania Palmer, the Financial Times Singapore correspondent. Welcome to the program, Stefania. I want to start by asking just for a, a general depiction of the atmosphere around the summit in Singapore. What difference to the city did the summit make? Were you always aware that this thing was happening?
8: I think the sort of starkest way that you could obviously realise there was uh, such a historic summit happening was mostly the security measures. So there were roadblocks and security, uh, police and very sort of big, large signs asking people to follow police orders, especially when you got closer to the Shangri-La and St. Regis hotels, which were the ones where Trump and Kim were staying. So I think the security measures were sort of the most obvious ways in which you could realise that the summit was happening. And also, I think whenever we spoke to taxi drivers or drivers of uh, Grab, which is sort of the Southeast Asian version of Uber, they were obviously the more frustrated people in Singapore because of uh, traffic and the fact, especially for Grab drivers, they were very scared that cancellations because of delays were going to hurt their ratings. So actually, a group of them were decided not to work at all during the, the summit week.
1: Like a lot of people, I think, who watched all this from afar, as I did, I I was mesmerised by the idea that being a a Kim Jong-un impersonator is a viable business model uh, and indeed a Donald Trump one. Did, Did you meet the impersonators?
8: I didn't meet them in person, uh, but they were essentially roaming around Singapore for many days preceding the the summit. And they even put together a sort of show, sort of photo opportunity in the in the form of their own summit a couple of days before the actual summit, which happened on Tuesday. And around a hundred people showed up uh, to take selfies with the impersonators at a cost. It was about eleven dollars a selfie. So they were actually quite a sensation, I have to say, and. attracted a lot of attention.
1: How much of a general circus was there around it in terms of things like souvenirs and celebrations? Because lest we all forget, say whatever else you will about President Trump. He is the president of the United States, whereas the other participant in this meeting is, of course, the leader of one of the worst tyrannies in human history.
8: Indeed. And I mean, I think from the Singapore perspective, there were different ways in which this was commemorated. And, you know, there were things sort of food related or cocktail related. So some of the restaurants, you know, put together special burgers or tacos or nasi lemak, which is sort of the traditional rice dish. I think the quirk here sort of side of things involved the Singapore mint, uh, putting together some commemorative medallions. And actually the gold plated one, which was over a thousand Singapore a piece. They had to increase production forwards threefold to meet demand uh, from collectors. But I think from the Singaporean point of view, I think the city-state was just so glad to play a part in uh, these peace talks that had the world spotlight on them as a small city-state. Uh, and I think that's why sort of the commemoration was so strong. It went sort of beyond almost the two protagonists' that were involved. Uh, I think for the city-state especially, it was about gaining a, a strong place geopolitically and, uh, I guess, in media all over the world for this particular week.
3: And here's the next
8: guest.
1: You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. At any summit, somewhere amid all the extraneous ballyhoo, is a room in which will often be gathered people who usually go out of their way to avoid each other. Our next guest has been in several such rooms. Aaron David Miller is the Vice President and Director of the Middle East Programme at the Woodrow Wilson Centre in Washington, D.C., and previously an advisor to both Democratic and Republican Secretaries of State on Arab-Israeli relations. Aaron, welcome to the programme. I want to ask first of all about... Summits and the extent to which they're basically kind of theatrical, is it not the case that more or less everything that's going to be announced is decided in advance?
6: No. If that were the case, then the record for presidential summitry would be much more consistent than it is. Most presidential summits fail. They fail because if in the event they are not meet and greet plus meetings or getting to know you meetings unless there're those sorts of summits where the expectation of a joint statement communique or a negotiation result is not the main focus most presidential summits don't work so the reality is no Let's go back to the
1: the beginning of a summit or before the beginning of a summit. And if we focus particularly on Camp David 2000, though I know that's not the only summit you were involved in, what are the preparations like for something like that? And I mean in terms of, you know, those details, the table arrangements, what shape the table is, who sits where, how much time gets expended worrying about that kind of intricacy?
6: Well, it really depends whether or not the negotiators are familiar with one another. For example, at Camp David in July of 2000, reality was that Israelis and Palestinians had been negotiating with one another for so long that that summit was actually quite casual. Seating arrangements, who would eat with whom, all of that stuff, we didn't have to worry about. If you compare that, however, with the Madrid summit, in October of 1991, in which I also participated, in which Russia and the United States, Gorbachev and Bush 41, brought Israel, a joint Jordanian-Palestinian delegation, Syrian delegation, an observer from the Gulf Cooperation Council together. That required a fair amount of thinking through, including the choice of venue, Madrid. We had to identify a city where both Israelis and uh, Syrians primarily had formal representation where the Palestinians felt comfortable. There were arrangements in the hall that need to be made. The uh, Spanish had a gorgeous painting. It must have been 10 by 15 feet of Charles killing the Moors. Well, we couldn't very well have that, and the Spanish didn't want it moved, but we persuaded them to move it. So in that case, where you had a three-day summit in which the first better part of the first and half of the second day was a public event, bringing together parties that had never interacted with one another formally in that sort of setting, with large delegations, including President of the United States and the Premier of the former Soviet Union. That required much more planning.
3: Aaron David Miller of the Wilson Centre speaking to the Foreign Desk's Andrew Muller. And the show recently won the Best Current Affairs category in the British Podcast Awards. That's from an episode called Do We Still Need International Summits? And you can find a link to its website and information on past episodes on our webpage now. That's rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. And thanks to Andrew Muller, Bill Lutie and Tom Edwards at Monocle for letting me bring that to you. Have you ever seen a dead body? That's the starting point for an Australian podcast called Dead Bodies, which discusses this macabre but fascinating topic. The two hosts, Dee Dee Dunleavy and Sharnel Vella, interview people whose lives or work have brought them into contact with the dead, as well as musing on their own experiences. In the process, they explore how seeing a dead body can affect us, and what the experience reveals about our own attitudes to life and mortality. Here's part of the first episode. It's not gory, but given the subject matter, it's perhaps best enjoyed by a more mature audience.
2: Hi, and welcome to our brand new podcast. It's called Dead Bodies. I hope you're not squeamish or terrified of them, because I am. We're going to talk about them a lot. Don't be scared. Why are you scared? I don't know. And this is this is the the reason I think that we're doing this. Hi, by the way, my name's Dee Dee Dunleavy. I've been in radio for... Thir- I'm sorry, was that not clear enough for you to hear? Look, it's over 30 years and let's just leave it at that. Young Chanel, young enough to be my daughter. Young
9: Chanel, I'm Chanel. I was the crime reporter for a little while in television. I'm now the court reporter. I've seen many dead bodies in my time.
2: Right. And this is the reason we're doing it because I have never seen a dead body ever and I'm terrified. And I think the only thing I can equate it to is where I live, there are quite a lot of snakes and I know they're about, and I'm aware of them, but it's always when you're not expecting it that you see one and your brain just doesn't compute what you're seeing. Have have you ever seen a snake?
9: I've seen a snake, but I think I'd be more afraid of a snake than a dead body.
2: It's it's strangely not scary because they look like they're made of plastic and your brain straight away says it's a toy, but then you go, it's a snake. So that's the closest I can get to actually thinking what it would be like to come across a dead body.
9: And I think that's why exactly why we're doing this, is that everyone's experiences, if you've seen a dead body or not, are so different. If you haven't seen one, you've got that fear. If you have seen one, it could be that, that image that sticks in your head for years and years and years, it could have been really horrific circumstances in which you discovered a body or, you know, it was perhaps a loved one in a hospital and, you know, that's still a dead body.
2: I want to and... rule out loved ones. Do you? Yeah. Do you want to do loved ones?
9: Well, I've got some loved ones. Don't rule me out. <laughs> Sorry. We've just started this and it's about to end. Thank you very much.
2: I'm already <laughs> you around. Well, I just figure I don't, I don't know if I want any crying to happen. From me or? Well, from anyone. Well, what we would like you to do is actually share your dead body stories with us and we'll give you all the ways to do that um, as we wrap things up. But I I don't want to be here like a funeral. Okay. I'm kind of looking for. This is horrible, but I will admit it. I'm kind of looking for the macabre. Grissom. It's it's like I want to go to a scary movie, and I don't want to, but I do.
9: Okay, well, I might start with my dead my first dead body. Then let's just get into it.
2: All right. Okay. How, how old were you?
9: I can't remember exactly, but I was definitely under ten. Ah. <gasps> Yeah, no. I what was happened? Definitely under ten, and I was travelling with my family. My mum's from Sri Lanka, and we were in Sri Lanka, and my family owned a, or they did at the time, they owned a tea plantation. So just get that image in your head. Yeah. It's lots of sort of big tea plantation, like what you'd see on the ads on television. You know the Dilmar ads, and um, there were there'd been a dead body found there and it was heavily decomposed (gasps) and we happened to be there on the day they found that body. And I remember it clear as day. It was in a blue hessian sack. The body because so, it was so decomposed.
2: Hang on. Would they, so they had gone and picked it up, or did you sneak into the field? And I'm no, just no, thinking, no, so how did they just, let it?
9: It was just there. Go so because I think they they there wasn't any drama about it being there. Like people were so matter of fact that yeah, this is a dead body. It's been found. And I remember walking up to the guy. And like, I must have said, can I have a look? Or I must have gestured that I, I don't know what I did, but he just opened the head.
2: little girl. I
9: know. And it was just in there. He, he
2: opened it to show yeah. you.
9: Yeah. He opened it and I just saw it in there and I was like, okay, cool. Do you? Met, was dead. it a man or a woman? I don't remember. I feel like I'm leaning towards saying it was a man. And I also feel like the backstory was that he was quite a poor man and he just died in the field. No one had found him.
2: Isn't that sad?
9: Yeah. Incredibly sad. But as a child under ten, straight over my head. Wasn't phased by it. Didn't care. It cool, didn't that's shock a dead body.
2: You. No, it didn't shock me at all. I spoke to a um a TV reporter who has covered a lot of crime cases who has seen dead bodies the other day. And she said the first time she saw one, the shock just ran through her. She said she just went cold and hot, her fingers froze. Yeah, Just right. the, and and yet you didn't have any reaction. No, and now I mean, I'm worried about like I'm looking at you differently and thinking well, who don't... am I working with?
9: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever had a fearful reaction to a dead body. A dead body is a dead body. It's not going to hurt you. Yeah, but it's it's the person creepiest. that made it a dead body that you need to worry about. It's creepy. Th- this is
2: what uh, I th- this is what we want to delve into and and try and understand. I don't know why I. I think I would probably be sick. I would cry. Mm. I don't know. I don't know what my reaction would be.
9: And then I know you don't want to go to the funeral and the family stuff, but in saying that, when I saw my grandfather in an open casket, I didn't like that. What sort of
2: family are you from? (laughs) What are you in front of? When you
9: have the viewing, like when you have the viewing the, the day before the funeral,
2: do you I you don't, don't do know that the, No, well I don't know if that's routinely done. And I know in Victorian days they used to lay the body out on the, the kitchen table and people would come along and have a look at it and
9: Oh well, now I've got another dead body now. story that's just sprung to well, mind. Well, yeah, gone.
2: So when... I can't get enough of it.
9: I'm repulsed of loving it. <laughs> when my uncle passed away yeah. again going back to Sri Lanka,
6: yeah.
9: uh, very sudden, very sad. He had a heart attack. So we organised it. Obviously, everyone's flying up there to go for the funeral. And when we arrived at their house, his body was in the house. So in a coffin in the middle of the lounge room, open. And it was like that for two days. And we slept there. Oh. That, that didn't. Did she just die? Uh, Is that no. your dying noise? How, how do you sleep? With a- just, yeah. And it's like he was just there. And oh, there would be photos of him somewhere like that. But yeah, that's he was just there. And like my auntie was there and everyone was sitting around the coffin. And that's very common in Sri Lanka that bodies in the house for several days
2: before the funeral. I kind of get it. Now I don't want to, I'm not comparing your uncle to a dog No, but my neighbour's dog died and I went with her to the to the vet where they put the dog down and they wrapped it up in a blanket and we brought it home in the boot of the car and she then, um, and I said, do you want my husband to come across and bury it for you? And she said, I'll just keep him overnight. So she slept with the Dead dog in the house, and I and I understood that I got that because, she, <laughs> because, because she she didn't want to say goodbye to him. She didn't want to let him go. Was, oh,
9: when I had to put my dog down, cried on the floor of the vet for hours. Couldn't do it. Totally mortified. Oh, so you're
2: different when it's a dog body.
7: Absolutely.
2: <laughs> so tell me about how many dead bodies have you seen in your work as a police reporter and crime reporter.
9: I couldn't even count.
2: Are you serious? I couldn't even count. Do you mean like count. dozens or is it more than that?
9: It would be way up there in the dozens. So I don't know if I'd reached. I may have reached at least. Because like, when we arrive at crime scenes, sometimes they're just there on the road. Or, you know, you can you can see them being photographed by forensic officers or they're still there in a field or they're just they're there.
3: Sharnel Vella and Dee Dee Dunleavy of the Dead Bodies podcast. And thanks to the show's producer, Kirsten Lim Howe, for her help in letting me play that to you. And that's about it from the podcast hour for now. Uh, Any listening recommendations, please do send them in. Pods at RadioNZ.co.nz is the email address. For now, from me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week.